word with you this morning. Uh, before I get to that, two quick announcements. Two. Number one, uh, we recognize, especially it seems for whatever reason in this service particularly, we have a lot of people that have been joining our church family or trying out our church family or checking out our church family or just here to see the circus. Whatever the reason is that you are here, we are glad that you're here because we know that God will use it in some way, shape, or form. However, we recognize and hold to high regard here at Sierra Bible Church that church is supposed to be a community. In order to have a community, you actually need to know one another. So if you are wanting to be known but don't necessarily know what that process is, because we know that it can be incredibly difficult for somebody, especially their first time in a church, to like walk in and just start shaking people's hands saying, hi, I'm new here, be my friend. That can be a little bit weird. Um, I, if you are comfortable doing it, I actually would encourage you to do it because it would be great. I think it'd be a, a great thing. But if you want another tool available to you, when you first walked in, there was a pamphlet that was given to you, a church bulletin, and inside is a connect card. That connect card allows you to put whatever level of information you are wanting to put about yourself at this time, because we're just feeling each other out here maybe. But once you've filled it out to the extent that you want, drop it in one of the boxes uh, by the back door, and we will connect with you in hopes that if this is the right place for you to flourish in your walk with Christ, then we will do whatever we can in our power to make that happen. That is announcement one. Announcement two, um, they have created this new thing that you may have heard of. It is, uh, my understanding, it's called like the internets or something like that. Said internets have information on them. And we have put information about our church on these internets at sbctrucky.com. I would encourage you. You may not know how much is going on here on a weekly basis, but if you're wanting to know and wanting to try to find some things that might be helpful to you, check out that website. It tells you everything that we've got going on and then some. Those are my two announcements. Okay, so now I get to turn to what, is, uh, what I'm more excited to do and I'm particularly excited to share with you this morning because I get to continue the series on 1 Timothy, which means that I get to give what is commonly referred to as an expository message. An expository message means that I get to let the text determine what we talk about instead of me determining what we talk about, which is really great because I think what God wants to talk about is probably better than my commentary about what God wants to say. So, and for those of you saying amen, I am not offended. <laughs> I am very excited to share with you from God's word this morning. So that being said, uh, we, have a, we have a tradition here that most times when we are going to read a big chunk that we're going to focus on of Scripture, we will stand together in honor of the Word and because of how important of what we're doing. So go ahead and do that. We are going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 5. We have some Bibles in the back if you forgot yours or uh, you don't have one and you want one. There's free Bibles in the back. Uh, we'd rather you have uh, a Bible than go home empty-handed we are going to read 1 Timothy chapter 5. We are going to focus on uh, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. If you have one of our church Bibles, it's page 993. 1 Timothy 5, chapter 17. Let the elders who rule, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, 
rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Before we turn to prayer, I want you to do a little exercise for yourself. Look at the text that you just read, and as you're looking, I want you to say aloud, these are God's words. Good. I do that because I want you to recognize how awesome and terrifying it is to have the words of the creator of the universe sitting before you. And we want to be dealing with these with the proper level of respect and honor and reverence. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon this time. God, we thank you that we have your words in front of us. Help me to do them honor. Help me to speak truth and help me to do it in such a way that helps us understand you better so that we can live for you more completely and fully. Amen. You can be seated. So, as we take a look this morning at 1 Timothy 5, if you have been with us, or you have a a memory that's like Dory the Fish, one way or the other, the letter of 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the key figures in the initial New Testament movement, and he's writing it to one of his protégés by the name of Timothy, who was in charge of one of the largest churches in the Roman Empire, in the city of Ephesus. We're going to talk more about that in a moment, but this letter is filled with not just personal details that you would expect between two individuals that are co-laborers for Christ, but also is geared towards, all right, you're in charge of one of the most pivotal churches in the Roman Empire. Let's make sure that things are going to go well. So where we've been immediately prior to the section that we're talking, this, talking about this morning is that Paul has been instructing Timothy on how to take care of widows and how that manifests in such a way that the church ought to be a family. Sometimes dysfunctional family, but a family nonetheless. And when we are here, yeah, amen, you've been in that dysfunctional family. <laughs> so when we turn to verse 17... Paul shifts gears a little bit, but is still very much focusing on what does the church need to look like. And he initially, if you take a look at the third word in the text there, let the elders, is going to talk for this portion of scripture about the elders. Before we dive into what Paul says about the elders, we should first ask ourselves, who is he addressing? So ask yourself, or ask out loud, who's he addressing? I will tell you. Good news. He's talking to this group, and the word that he uses is the presbyteroi. Now, the, the, the presby- you, you might recognize that term from the Presbyterian church. They kind of stole that, made that their own. But the presbyteros in the first century world were those typically who were older, although not necessarily. For the Jews, they used this word in such a way that these were the people that were in charge of the synagogue, the main religious center for their people. For the Greeks, they used this word to refer to those that were in charge and sitting on these governmental councils for their civic centers. So this word has both religious and civic slash administrative connotations. 
So as a result, we're, who we're talking to here is those who have the responsibility of religiously leading and administratively orchestrating God's church. In chapter 3, you might remember if you were here, we talked about church leaders, but Paul actually used a different word there for the leaders that he was talking about. He uses the word episcopes, which you might pick up from another denomination, the Episcopalians. They stole that one and made made that one their own. But when we take a look at Paul's writings overall, specifically, and if you're a note taker, you'll want to jot down Titus chapter 1, another letter that Paul writes to another one of his protégés in charge of another important church. Paul uses these words interchangeably. So it would seem that we're addressing the same group of people as described in chapter 3, but whereas Chapter 3 addressed the necessity of their character. Chapter 5 is going to address how the church needs to interact with this group of people. Before we then take that and go into the text, I want to tell you two more important things that I think that you should know. And the reason why I'm doing this is I don't know if you're necessarily familiar. If you're new to this church thing, you certainly wouldn't be familiar with this idea. But there's, there's kind of a... a there's a thread within those that get to speak in front of churches where there's always this balance that we're trying to strike of we want to somehow be entertaining in such a way to not bore you, but at the same time, uh, we want to make sure that we are understanding not just, uh, we, we don't want to just leave here feeling all good because we were all entertained, but instead we want to actually like know what the Bible really says because these are God's words, as you have just told yourself. And just like you like to be understood clearly, so does God. God wants you to understand his words. The best way to try to study the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter, is to try to understand it in light of the historical context, what was going on at the time in which these words were written. That helps us kind of figure out how can we then best apply these ideas to our current life. So, I've tried to give you a little bit of the linguistic context through some words, and they'll be a little bit more punctuated here and there, but I want you to take a look at our church structure and compare it to Timothy's church structure before we then dive in. Because if you're new to the faith, you might be surprised to find out that there are few biblical instructions on how church leadership is supposed to be organized. I don't know if you know that. But as a result, individual churches kind of get to determine what works best or seems best for them. For Sierra Bible Church, this individual church, those who have the responsibility of oversight, our episcopoi or our presbyteroi, fall into a mix of a, a group of people that we call elders. And I say it's a mixed group. When I say mixed, it's because we have some people in that mixed group of elders who we designate and give the title pastors. Our pastors at Sierra Bible Church are paid leaders. They are paid uh, elders. However, in that group of elders, there are some individuals who are not paid. They still are in the same leadership board of elders, but we have, you know, Pastor Jesse, Pastor Brad, Pastor Brad, Pastor Caleb, Pastor... I just forgot a pastor. Thank you. (laughs) How can we forget Pastor Wayne? I mean, let's be honest, most of us wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Pastor Wayne. Um, That being said, um, we also have a specific elder that we designate as our senior pastor. That's Pastor Jesse, who bears the brunt of the day-to-day requirements for the church. 
So if we're going to look at this text today and ask ourselves, to whom does this passage apply? This would most likely apply to that group at SBC that we call the elders, which fortunately is translated as the word elders for your own understanding amazement. Now, that being said, that church structure is not inherent to how you could structure a church. I've already said that. As a moment of contrast, if you take a look at the church of Ephesus, over which Timothy was overseer, you realize that their church structure is really different. If we take a look, and if you wanted to check me on this later, and I encourage you to do so, jot down Acts chapter 19 and 20, which are kind of the brunt of the the historical details about how the church at Ephesus came to be and what was going on there. And we know that the church in Ephesus started in the synagogue, the Jewish religious place, but realized for a couple of, uh, couple of key reasons that it was going to need to find another place to meet. And so Paul, who was trying to plant this church in Ephesus, actually started using a secular school building to try to share the gospel message. And as more and more people were listening to the gospel and giving their lives over to Christ, they started to organize, according to Acts 20, different groups that would meet in homes. You see, Ephesus was one of the largest and most cosmopolitan cities of the Roman Empire. But even so, the idea of having one church building where the whole city's church body would meet, it wasn't a practice yet. That wasn't something that was done in first century Christianity. There was no such thing as different denominations or separate churches. They were all one church, but they were meeting in different home locations. Timothy's job was to oversee the various leaders that then oversaw each of those home churches. So our church here at Sierra Bible Church obviously has a different structure than that of the historical context into which Paul is writing. But nonetheless, the instructions about elders is not dependent upon leadership structure. Instead, the instructions that are provided here are for the role that the elders and leaders play for the church. However, when I say that, this passage is not just instructions about the leaders. It is also instructions about how you, who may or may not be leaders in the church, are to interact with your leaders. You see, there are three things Now that we kind of know who we're talking to, there are three things that Paul is going to talk about. And I say three things, most likely because I have a Baptist heritage hangover that all messages have to have three points. Those of you that are from Baptist churches are giggling because you know that all messages have three points. But it's actually, there are three main points that Paul is making here, so I'm going to go with that. He, He addresses three categories. One, elder compensation. Two, elder accountability, and three, elder designation. So elder compensation, elder accountability, and elder designation. Let's look first at elder compensation, point one. Let's look again at verse 17. Those elders who are ruling or directing or managing well, let them be considered worthy of double honor, especially those laboring in the word or those who are teaching. Since the beginning of the Christian movement, there, has been, there are a lot of different questions that have always floated around, but one of the consistent questions has been, should the church pay its leaders? 
This is a special question that if you ever wanted to kind of just chit-chat with me, is an important question to my history. You may not know um, that I actually was a pastor, a paid pastor, for the better part of 10 years. And for a, a variety of reasons, I decided to leave the paid ministry. And a lot of people were telling me, you can't leave the ministry. And I had to spend the next five to eight years explaining to people, I'm not leaving the ministry. I'm leaving the paid ministry. There's a difference. So it's a topic that I, I feel somewhat passionate talking about. And so I want to understand what it is that Paul actually says in verse 17. What does it mean to give them double honor? Well, one of the possible translations of this is exactly what you probably have within your text, double honor, and all that, that those words in English would connote, that, that we could translate the word as honor in that church leaders should be respected more than our normal level of respect for all people. That, it was, that, it, that respect comes because of their responsibility for the people. As I was getting ready to go up to the first service, one of our paid pastors, one of our elders here said, you know what, I, I, would, I would be willing to do away with double honor if I could uh, actually just get a little respect. You know, old like Rodney Dangerfield, like tie tightening stuff. I don't, I don't know, I'm starting to get kind of old. But I, uh, that, that, that's certainly part of what Paul is saying. That's certainly within the range of meaning, that we need to be respectful of our leaders. But does it also, or can it also mean, financial payment? I'll tell you that the word range definitely allows it. And let me prove it to you in a different way. Before we uh, go back to 1 Timothy 5, keep your finger in 1 Timothy 5 and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians is a letter that I've uh, been meditating on in my personal time with God over uh, the past six weeks or so. And it's, a, it's another letter by Paul to, this time not a person, but a group of people, the church in Corinth, and he's addressing some issues that he's heard about that are problems that he needs to talk about, and then things that the Corinthians actually wrote to, that, to, wrote to Paul and said, hey, Paul, what's going on with this? Help me understand this. And so Paul addresses that stuff through his letters to the Corinthian church. One theme that continues to show itself, not just in 1 Corinthians, but also 2 Corinthians, is the fact that there were people that were permeating the Corinthian church that were essentially saying, we are more important than Paul, we've got a better message that we can give you, and you ought to be paying us for that message. Paul addresses this in part in 1 Corinthians 9, and I want you to take a look at 9, starting in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 9, 9. For it's written in the law of Moses... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Where did it come from? Where have you heard that before? Don't be afraid to answer. Easy one, low-hanging fruit. Where'd you hear it? You heard it this morning, yeah? Where'd you hear it? First Timothy 5, right? Paul uses the same argument in two different places. Can you do that? Yes. Yes, you can. Now, I, I love his question. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out for grain. Is God worried about cows? That's essentially what he says. Is it for oxen that God's concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. 
If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul drives his point home in verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The Lord directed that those proclaiming the gospel should be compensated. Paul says it clearly here in 1 Corinthians 9. You can flip back over to 1 Timothy 5. What we're seeing is that the reason why Paul makes the same argument in two different places is that Paul ultimately still wants to make the same point. That it is certainly right for the church to be compensating those who have the responsibility of sharing God's word. Look at Paul's argument for this in chapter uh, 1 Timothy 5. We'll take a look at verse 18. He makes two different arguments. <clears throat> for the scripture says, stop there for a moment, just a little sidebar. Notice what Paul does in order to support his point. He doesn't use a logical argument, what would be reasonable. He doesn't use how he feels. He doesn't use his authority. What does he use? He uses scripture. Keep that in mind. Now, this is coming from a guy who paid a heck of a lot of money to get a degree in philosophy. I think philosophy actually gets a bad rap, and philosophy is great. But if my philosophy somehow deviates from the truth that is found in Scripture, I'm a crazy person, punch me in the face and don't let me talk anymore. Because Scripture is what we need to be basing as the anchor for our authority. I noticed that none of you giggled. I really mean that. <laughs> don't let me talk to you if you find me deviating from Scripture. And you'll see that that is one of the hearts of this passage here. Paul uses Scripture as his main source of argumentation. What is the argument? First, the verse with which we're familiar. It comes from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. A threshing ox, don't put a muzzle on him. Okay, you may not be familiar with farm terms. I'm not familiar with farm terms. I grew up in Los Angeles, much to my own disappointment. But, God bless Google, I'm able to figure out what threshing actually is. What is threshing? Threshing, and it's probably the easiest way to understand it, is to think about a crop of wheat. There's a part of a crop of wheat that you can eat and a part of it that you can't eat, right? You might have heard the term separating the wheat from the chaff. The chaff is the stuff you can't eat, and the wheat is what we eat. And in cultures where threshing was still part of the process of, of processing wheat, it would be common for them to utilize animals like oxen or donkeys to try to work through the process. That process then was guided by a principle that God commanded in Deuteronomy 25.4 that you cannot put a muzzle. What's a muzzle? Where does a muzzle cover? The mouth, right? Right? Some of us are living life under a muzzle these days. But what God says is do not muzzle this animal who you are utilizing to actually process your own food. How unfair is it for oxen who love to eat stuff like wheat to walk around in wheat and not be able to eat any. That would just be mean. And God then directly says, so don't put a muzzle on them. Let them eat while they're working. Paul gives another example from Scripture that it's an adaptation of Leviticus 19.13 or Deuteronomy 24.15. Don't hold back the wages of your worker. 
That specific commandment in the Old Testament was referencing those who were hiring day laborers. Hey, don't be holding back their their money, and it's specifically told to them, give it to them at the end of the day. No, two weeks later, you're going to get a check in the mail. They need that money right now because they're living right now off of the work that they're doing for you right now. So pay them. Now, interestingly, I don't know if you caught it, but in 1 Corinthians 9.14, Paul says the Lord gives a commandment. And I think he might actually be even referencing Jesus, who if you took a look in Matthew 10.10 or Luke 10.7, you'll notice that when Jesus sends out his disciples to declare the good news of the kingdom, he tells them God is going to provide for their material needs. If you remember those passages, and this is going to be a question for the super Bible nerds among us, if you remember those passages as he's sending out the disciples, how is God going to provide for the disciples' material needs? Do you remember? It's all right. Don't be afraid. How would he, how would he provide for their material needs? Yeah, yeah, don't be afraid to give that answer. Yeah, the people that they stayed with. Jesus is saying, hey, you don't need to take a bunch of extra stuff because when you go to the house of somebody and proclaim to them the good news of the kingdom, they are to provide you with the things that you need. In doing this, Jesus inherently commanded two things. Number one, that those who are going out and proclaiming the word were going to trust God to provide them through other people. But number two, he also inherently then is making the statement hey, those of you who have received the word of God, you've got to support this person who's telling it to you. You've got to be hospitable with the material needs of those who are declaring the kingdom of the gospel to you, or the good news of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. That's what I meant to say. You've got to be sharing that stuff with them. Now, I know that there are probably some of you that get a little bit itchy When somebody gets up in church and starts telling you that you should be throwing your money down, and I think that that's good, I think you probably should get a little bit itchy when you hear that. Because unfortunately, you can even see within the New Testament that there are numerous references to manipulative, evil men who are claiming to be teachers of God's word, but they make that claim so that they can make money. One of the best ways that you can make money and have power and influence people is start your own cult, right? Then you can somehow manipulate it in such a way where you can get all the good stuff. And if you want them to drink the Kool-Aid, you give them the Kool-Aid. And they'll drink the Kool-Aid. It's weird. And you should be questioning those people. And it's because of this very principle that even in some places, not all, But some of the places that Paul went to spread the gospel, Paul actually worked a manual labor job to make money. Now, I know that this may not necessarily hit you significantly until you recognize who Paul was. You have to realize how humbling it was for Paul to work a manual labor job. Maybe you don't know, but Paul was the understudy to the most important religious leader of the day. He would never have had to work or get one callus on his hands if he didn't want to, if he would have followed that path. He would have power, money, influence, and people would do whatever he would want them to do. 
because he would have had that power. Paul, this same Paul, not wanting to get in the way of spreading the gospel in many places, worked a manual labor job, callousing his hands so that the gospel could be more effective. So, as in all things, and you'll hear me use this word numerous times in this morning's message, there's a balance that we need to strike. Under the teaching of both Jesus and Paul, leaders, and especially the teaching leaders, should be financially compensated. So much so that Paul uses the word doubly, which means more than you think you ought. But if one of your leaders seems to be getting rich off the gospel, you should probably take a second look. Which leads us to our second point. We talked about elder compensation. Number two, let's talk about elder accountability. Elder accountability. To do this, we're going to take a look at 19, 20, and 21. Verse 19. So against one of these elders, these presbyteroi, don't receive an accusation unless it's on the grounds of two to three witnesses. What verse 19 tells us is that because elders are worthy of respect and honor, do not take it lightly to accuse one of your leaders of doing wrong. I'm sure that you recognize that sometimes it is in vogue to criticize and accuse our leaders. One of the like, nerdy things that I like to do is I'll watch YouTube videos of like, Christians debating non-Christians or uh, people that are both within the Christian faith kind of debating a theological topic. And so because of that, all the computer algorithms that are trying to turn me into a commodity will throw different videos at me thinking that I will like those videos. And it is striking to me how often I come across YouTube channels, entire channels, that seem to be focused on the idea of trying to take down other Christian leaders. My concern with this is that that's what the world is seeing about Christianity. And Jesus pretty clearly taught us that our love for one another is what's going to proclaim his truth to the world. Now, I'm not saying that we should not be addressing different ideas of your leaders or even the leaders themselves and hold them accountable to God's word and what is there. But we need to be cautious and generous in our response to this. And here's what's beautiful about it. One of the things that I love about being part of the elders here at Sierra Bible Church, the leadership group, is that we are all fairly different people. Most of us wouldn't even necessarily be friends if it weren't for the fact that we all follow Jesus. We're that different from one another. But, or as a, as a result of our difference, it's not uncommon for us to disagree about stuff. What is beautiful is that even times when we are in disagreement with one another, do you know what we do with that disagreement instead of standing there and arguing with one another till we're blue in the face and all going home and complaining to our wives till our wives hate the elder board? I know you might think that we shouldn't do that, but I will tell you that is what many elders in many churches unfortunately have to do. But at SBC, what we do is we stop. We do discuss, but we stop and we wait and we pray, and we address it at a different time. Why? Because we believe at this church that if we're right about an idea, the Holy Spirit will manifest it in the hearts of the other leaders at some point as well. 
That doesn't necessarily mean that we'll always be unanimous, but it will mean that we will be united because we all serve under the same Holy Spirit trying to serve the same God. And conversely, if you find yourself, according to 19, looking at a leader and going, I don't think that's right. What I would encourage you to not do is immediately fire off an email going, Dear Pastor so-and-so, I think you are wrong. This is like Kermit the Frog typing on his keyboard, if you remember that. Muppets were very formative for me. (laughs) That's what we have a tendency to do. We just fire it off. I think you're wrong. Man, I feel better about myself. What if? What if you actually took verse 19 seriously and thought, you know what? I think there might be a problem here. First thing I'm going to do, I'm going to take it to God in prayer. I'm going to try to seek the Holy Spirit and see if this really is an issue and trust that if it is, and you are right about this leader being wrong, I can guarantee you that God is going to place it on the hearts of some other people, and that idea is going to be able to get addressed. That problem will be solved. If you would take it to your God in prayer first and wait for his working by the Holy Spirit, not only will you be in obedience to what he says in 19 here, that you're going to need to join with your brothers and sisters, but you're going to see a whole lot more effective strategies implemented in when things need to get repaired. Now, that being said, verse 20 tells us when we've realized or we get to a point where something needs to be repaired, Those who are sinning, the emphasis on the text here is the words, before all, before everyone, rebuke them in order that the rest, and that might be the rest of the elders or the rest of the people, either way, I think that the point is still going to be the same, that the rest might be in fear. When we do find that an elder is seen to be in failure, that elder's rebuke needs to be public. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has failed in this and they're paying for it right now, trying to keep so many of these leadership failures under wraps. And they come out eventually and it causes so much damage to the gospel. Now, when we rebuke these elders publicly, we're doing it in order to teach the people a very important concept that if your leader can fail, you ought to be able to look at yourself and go, holy cow. If that person who I thought was like super duper spiritual guy has like a Jesus cape and sleeps next to a cross, if they can mess up, I can mess up too. It's not for the purposes of trying to cause that elder any shame. It's really not. Instead, it's to try to help people self-examine, knowing that Satan wants to cause all of us to be torn from the church, all of us to fail. Which is why verse 21 tells us what it does, that Timothy is getting implored, charged by Paul before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels that you guard these things without predetermination or discrimination or bias, that your decision-making be without partiality. Why do we have to do this? Because God is watching and Jesus is jealous for his church and the angels are watching how we are going to employ God's justice in Jesus' church. So friends, no one gets a pass. There's too much at stake. 
way too much at stake. And it is because of this significant responsibility of the leadership of Jesus' church why we need to be so careful in the leadership selection process. So this is what we turn to in the last section of the passage. We've talked about elder compensation. we talked about elder accountability. And now we're going to talk about elder designation in 22 through 25. Look again at verse 22. Do not quickly lay hands upon another nor fellowship in their sins. Keep yourself pure. And that word there has overtones of righteous and godlike and holy You need to slow down, Timothy, on your laying on hands. Now, this whole concept of the laying on of hands may be a very confusing concept to you, and I think rightfully so. Paul actually mentioned it in chapter 4, that Timothy had the elders lay hands on him as he was preparing for his responsibility in ministry over the Ephesian church. What I wanted to do in preparation for the message was to try to take a look at every time that that phrase was used, the laying on of hands, and try to understand it in the New Testament. And the majority of the times that it shows up, especially in the Gospels and Acts, it seems to be referenced, or it seems to be referencing the process by which one individual is being used by the Holy Spirit to physically heal another individual. However, there are a couple of times where we see the meaning that I think is more appropriate for our text today. In Acts chapter 6, verse 6, and in Acts chapter 13, 3, let me look, uh, just briefly tell you what you can find there. In Acts 6, 6, the apostles lay their hands on newly selected deacons to, pre- to prepare them for the special ministry of the church. In Acts 13.3, Paul and Barnabas are designated by the laying on of hands to represent the church on the missionary journey that they're about to embark on. So, what is the significance? What's the understanding? Well, given the context, it seems that Paul is encouraging Timothy to cautiously designate his new leaders. Why? Why? Because the message of the church is going to be associated with that leader. Most people, even you this morning, you will probably not remember the majority of what I've said. Actually, you won't remember the majority of what I said. But, you ever heard that phrase before? Like, people won't remember what you say, but they'll remember how you made them feel? When you get designated as a leader in the church, and then you fail... No one's ever going to remember what that leader said. What they end up remembering is that that leader failed and how that influences the church as a whole and how that shapes how people see the church, which is why the enemy loves attacking, tempting, and making fall the leaders within the church. I don't necessarily need to name names and I don't encourage you to go do the research, but we even saw it within the last couple of weeks, one of the most beloved Christians of our time, whose name was the most recognizable or one of the more recognizable, was known to have all of these secret sins that now are finally kind of trickling out. And I pray that the enemy does not use that to damage all of the wonderful things that this leader did. Even tomorrow, I mean, we we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr., and I don't know where you necessarily land in terms of his spirituality, although I think there's a good argument to be made that he was trying to serve Jesus by what he did. 
That man was plagued by temptations and failures that the church used to accuse him and not listen to what he had to say. The enemy loves attacking leaders and making them fall, which is why we have to so carefully and cautiously designate our new leaders and why it is so crucial that Timothy, the end of verse 22, keep himself pure. You've got to keep watch on yourself. Anyone could fall. Now, that being said, when we come to verse 23, if you're reading it in the English Standard Version, you'll notice that there's actually a parenthesis around verse 23, because I think that this next idea is a parenthetical idea. It's kind of an aside. I told you before that this is a personal letter from two guys that were co-warriors for the kingdom of God, and they had worked together so tightly that there's a lot of personal stuff that pops up in the letter. And inasmuch as Paul knows that it is going to be crucial that Timothy keep himself pure, he also needed to tell Timothy, hey, Tim, relax a little bit. Verse 23, not just water, but use a little wine on the account of your stomach and your various maladies or the things that are bothering you or your, your sicknesses. Though you must cautiously maintain the purity of the church leadership, you probably could calm down a little bit on your whole abstinence from wine thing. You see, if you're new to the faith, uh, you, you may blessedly have no idea of the fact that the church has a very complicated history with alcohol. And it kind of started with the start. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus was the best winemaker that ever lived. First miracle, first way that God's power was shown through Jesus, he made some good wine and made it for people that had already been drinking in violation of ABC law. <laughs> and that practice somehow even trickled into the fact when you read 1 Corinthians 11, the, the church in Corinth was, was meeting in different homes, and when they would meet together... They would celebrate and have a meal with one another. Sidebar moment, okay, just for a moment. I'm just going to jump onto my, side, my soapbox. I'll jump back off in a moment. The, what, the, what the Corinthian church was accused of was partying too hard when they got together. Because instead of, I, I don't know if you've taken communion before, and I can say this because we're not, so we don't have to like, cause a problem with it, but as a tendency to be this very solemn affair, we have to be quiet and be introspective, and it's good to be introspective. Paul instructs us to do that when it comes time to take communion, but communion is a celebration, not a time for sadness. It would be okay for us from time to time when we take communion to take communion as opposed to take communion. Both are okay. Balance, right? want to balance it out. But what Paul was sharing in 1 Corinthians 11 was that this, as the people were getting together to take communion, the people were just getting drunk off their rear end, and other people, especially the people that were showing up late, would have like nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and somehow that was communion. Paul's main concern was not the alcohol in the moment. Paul's concern was that when you come to take communion, you do it as a community. And if you're showing up to get drunk to celebrate Jesus, you probably need to check yourself. That seems like a fair point, doesn't it? 
It was because of the church's complicated relationship with alcohol that Timothy actually had decided to just abstain altogether. I'm just not going to do this. Paul tells him that even though you've got to stay pure, Timothy, you probably could calm down a little bit. The emphasis in the text is a, a, a little bit. You could use a little wine. It might even help out your stomach a bit. In the first, uh, first century, it was actually thought that wine would actually have some medicinal assistance to an individual for a variety of reasons. So that being said, in this parenthetical comment, none of this text is, is arguing that, friends, that if you choose to abstain from wine, God commands you to drink. That is not what I'm telling you right now, okay? Again, balance. Some of you in this room, some of you watching online, certainly some people outside of this building probably should abstain from alcohol. But some of you, you could relax a little bit. It's okay. There's a balance to it. Now, remember Paul was sharing this in the midst of a, a larger context of ensuring the personal purity of both Timothy and his leaders. And verse 24 to 25 shows us more reasons why. Verse 24 some men's sins are evident or obvious or known, and they go before them into judgment. There's almost like a word picture there of like somebody, that like the sin dragging a dog on a leash, uh, dragging them into judgment, but others pop up afterwards. Likewise, good works, some good works are evident or obvious or known to all. And some you can't even hide even if you wanted to. You see, the main reason that we need to take our designation of our, of our leaders slowly is because some people are really good at hiding their sin. Some people, it's really obvious that they're a sinner, right? I mean, some sins are just like super obvious. The like super boastful person or super prideful person or super greedy person or whatever the case may be. Sometimes that stuff is completely obvious, but it's also really easy to look super holy for like an hour on Sunday morning, isn't it? Which is why, friends, not to tell you that you're not enough, but what we're doing right now, it's not enough. And it's not because I need you to do more. I'm not saying Jesus needs you to do more. I'm saying that to be part of this church, you actually need to be known by people, and you need to know other people. Because they need to be able to call you on your stuff. Not so that they can judge you, but so they can come alongside and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I'm not really sure you should be doing this right now. Don't you think this is going to affect your witness? Don't you think this is going to wreck your life? Didn't you tell me you didn't want to be doing this? Coming alongside people is what church is really is about. I'm not saying that what we're doing right now is, is wrong. I'm just saying... This isn't being a part of a church. This is understanding more about how to be a part of a church. And we need to understand God's expectations about how we hold these leaders accountable. Sometimes good works are blatantly obvious. Some, some works are so good that you can't even hide them even if you wanted to. Some people are just so headed in God's direction. Which brings us to the end of our text, but might leave you wondering, well, what am I supposed to do with all of this? You see, this may have been a little bit longer or a little bit more detailed than you would have liked, and this is the time when I'm supposed to like fakely apologize for that. I'm sorry for that, but I'm 
Sorry, not sorry. Instead, we, we need to understand God's expectations. And we need to understand God's expectations for how we interact with leaders in his church. What we see in this text is that we are to respect them, even pay them, but recognize that they are not untouchable holy people. We are to hold them accountable to their respectable position. We are to carefully designate them as our leaders. As the band comes up to respond and close our time together, I want to leave you with this thought. Now, more than ever before, and I'm not just saying that to like do the classic speaker hyperbole thing. Now's the most important time. Now more than ever. No, but really, now more than ever, the world has no clue what a healthy church and healthy church leadership looks like. No clue. Fortunately, God has given us some instruction. And it is my responsibility and the responsibility of the other elders here to ensure that our church remains healthy. But it is your responsibility, you, 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 you in the internet lands, everywhere that you are sitting in those gray chairs and not up here as one of the leaders, it is your responsibility to help keep us in the balance of supported and accountable. We have to be united as a church to represent Jesus' kingdom to this chaotic world. The leaders can't do it alone, and you can't do it alone. We need each other. We need to lead in a healthy direction according to what God has instructed us in the Word, and you need to hold us accountable to make sure that we are doing just that. We are given instructions even of how to go about that. And I praise God that these instructions can be so clear and right there in front of us. So hopefully this morning, I've used God's words to instruct you on how to unite in your responsibility and help us leaders do our responsibility. Now let's pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to help us accomplish our jobs. Holy God, we do not take your church lightly. Jesus, we know that this church is your wife and you love her and gave yourself up for her. God, through your power, purify us. Fix the things that need to be fixed so that we reflect you better to this lost and dying world. God, they need you and they're most likely going to see you through us. God, unite us in our purpose of serving you so that we can give you the praise and honor that you deserve. Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with us? We're going to sing one last song. And uh, before we do that, Brad's going to share a couple of verses with you guys. Just uh, We're going to sing Holy is the Lord. Um, the first line in that song is we stand and lift up our hands.